Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Michael Keynes, and you're listening to my interview with the writer Gregory Normanton, brought to you by the Times Literary Supplement. Gregory's books include a collection of aphorisms, two translations of classic French books for children, two collections of short stories, and four novels that range across history from the medieval period up to that far more horrific time known as the early 1990s. The new Normanton novel, The Devil's Highway, is published this month by Fourth Estate, And my advanced copy features this formidable description on its back cover. Three journeys, 3,000 years, one destination. We are all on the Devil's Highway. Gregory, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Can you say a little bit, first of all, about those three journeys, about who's making them, when they're making them, where they're all going? Sure. Uh, Well, I I suppose the spiel is that this. I wanted to write a book that was epic in scope kind of intimate in scale. So it, 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 it takes place in one place, but at three different moments in history. Uh, the place is uh, a little area of Heath, well, it's quite a big area by English standards, of Heath and now Pine Plantation, just above where my parents lived uh, and where I grew up in North Surrey. You know, Surrey, we tend to think of a sort of leafy stockbroker belt, but this area where I grew up, uh, on the Berkshire border is is a, is a little spikier, at least in terms of its topography, and so it's it's an area that was was Bagshot Heath, um, uh, and Daniel Defoe writes about it, and I quote him in the beginning of the book. But anyway, just above my parents' house, there's about four thousand acres of heathland, what survives of heathland, largely thanks to the MOD that uses it as training ground, and then running through the rest of it, which is a mainly pine plantation you've got a Roman road, which popularly is known as the Devil's Highway, because I suppose folk perception was that only the devil could have built something so straight and wide and strong, not thinking necessarily that it was Roman. Uh, And just above that Roman road, there's an Iron Age hill fort. And so this is kind of the landscape that I wandered about and wondered about as a child with my parents. And particularly as a teenager, I sort of discovered it with my dad or rediscovered it in more depth. Uh, and so, as is the case, I suppose, anywhere on this crowded, rather ancient island, you only have to look and go a short distance before you you find yourself stubbing your toes against the ghosts of the past. So I've always wanted to write about this landscape, and for years and years I wasn't quite sure how to go about it, um, because my experience of it has been as a local birder and a walker and a conservationist, and I've come up, you know, occasionally in conflict with other other values about the the 
the, the land we've always had problems with 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 bikers and and arsonists and and so on and so forth because it's very combustible heath it's too tempting uh, uh and so that's kind of the contemporary story but i always had a sense you have a sense when you're walking this and it's 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 sand underfoot and there's a lot of flint and as we know uh flint was the basis of mesolithic and neolithic industry so you always have a sense of there being being a part being a past you know, deep past and so um that's a long spiel preamble but basically over this over the course of centuries this one place becomes many places so it begins in about 66 AD I say about 66 AD you can see I've really worked it out quite specifically <laughs> right, I don't know why I make it sound like it's vague and it's the story of a, of a young British boy and Duggan uh, whose tribe are, are pretty placid and are reconciled to Roman dominance, but his brother has fallen in with, I suppose, the druidical equivalent of the Mad Mullahs, who are driving young people in the Middle East and disaffected young men to violence. And this priest is going to get his brother and, and other young men to commit a stupid act of violence against the Roman rulers uh, as an act of defiance. Then in the middle section... I mean, they're actually, they're interleaved constantly, so you keep moving from one to the other. And the middle section takes place in 2011, and it's the story of uh, a soldier, H, as he's known, uh, who is uh, homeless, been kicked out by his family, because he has all kinds of problems, including PTSD. He's just come back from Afghanistan. He's a bit lost. Uh, and he's meant to echo the Roman soldier that we encounter earlier. And he's going to fall in by accident with a young girl, who is the daughter of an archaeologist who is himself passionately devoted to the point of mania to defending the land. So there's about the dispute between the land. And then the last section takes place centuries in the future, where I kind of look to places like Darfur to guess what, if we don't change the path we're on, Britain might well be like in a climate-ruined mm -hmm. world. And that's really the story of a group of feral children who are trying to get out to the West Country where the rains are still falling. And so these stories all take place in one place. There are a number of recurring themes, but broadly speaking, you can see why this is a difficult sell because it takes about ten and a half minutes to explain. <laughs> it's not an easy spiel, but broadly speaking, you know, it's very influenced by people like um, Alan Garner and Redshift. And mm -hmm. I won't pretend it doesn't have all kinds of debts, but I, I hope that I've worked honestly with those debts to do something new. But it seems that you found a way to combine those influences debts, you know, with this interest that's actually been smouldering at the back of your mind for quite some time. I mean, you, Afghanistan comes up, obviously, in the context of the middle section, as you call it, you mm. know, with H, the soldier, mm. or the former soldier. It's very interesting you refer to um, the future as being away almost that world brought closer to home. You talk about Surrey being not this caricature, stockbroker, belt, safe terrain, but somewhere that, that actually is a bit more dangerous than people know bit wilder maybe and something that also needs a bit more care and that's one of the themes that mm. binds the thing together i mean what I, one of the things i really love about this is we're talking about sections of the story and the way you i've just challenged you to um describe the book you have to talk about a first section and a second and a third past present and future but you interleave them to make them resonate in interesting ways so the story's bound together by narrative moments that recur from from story to story mm. Um, but also distinguished in interesting ways. I mean, there's maybe, um, would you say, there's there's a tension between thinking of it as being cyclical and thinking of it as this is the path we're on and this is what's going to happen. Yes, I'm glad you touched on the word cyclical and path, of course. I mean, the ro road is uh, it's a literal place. It's a place of conflict. It's a place that marks the statement of power and conquest and dominion from the parts of view, or point of view of the Romans. But also it's a, met it's a metaphor for the whole idea of progress, which... 
as anyone who studied the concept of progress traps will know, is a, at least a problematic one. Uh, and I suppose uh, counter to that is, and again, this is massively simplified, but when you're creating a story, you can allow yourself with all, all kinds of simplifications for the sake of the narrative and the coherence that you probably wouldn't allow yourself if you were writing mm. a you know, critical academic text. Uh, so it, it's, it suited me to pitch this Roman idea of straightness Mm-hmm. And and just riding roughshod over a landscape or topography, with what I imagine would be a, a Celtic mindset. I mean, the boy himself is influenced by his mother. That you know that that the the Celtic tribes themselves are perhaps already becoming increasingly warlike and masculine. But that but that the boy in Duggan is in touch with a different kind of thinking, which is already mm-hmm. already old when he's arrived on the scene. Right. Uh, which is more to do with cycles, cycles of the seasons, but also the idea of the cyclical, the idea that we that, that we repeat things, that things that we're bound, to, we're almost doomed to repeat things. Right. Yeah. And that seems to me to be probably truer to human experience if we were capable of seeing it in the aggregate than than the idea that we are heading in a Hegelian sense. Yes, from right. Some kind of Whiggish progress. Y- yes, the exactly. Way forward. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I suppose, broadly speaking, politically, I am what an American would call a progressive, but I'm glad that we don't live in America for a host of reasons, but yeah. from a really trivial reason that I, I wouldn't want to use the word progressive because I don't think the word progress actually serves us very well because it's a myth. And myths are fine. We need myths. We need mm-hmm. to have a relationship with myths that recognises that's what they are. The problem is that we're not conscious that half the stories that rule us are just that. Yes. And, and so they become kind of toxic stories. Well, it's funny. I mean, it seems we go through phases of storytellers needing to recreate, uh, refashion myth, refashion fairy tale. All these old things come around and people try to rewrite Shakespeare, Homer, um, here, I mean, it's, you talked about wanting, in a way, I don't know, it's the wrong phrase, this isn't the phrase you used, but scaling down maybe the epic to really the decisions that one or two people make um, and how that affects the world around them. And I think there's, you mentioned H, but there's Bobby, isn't there, the girl mm-hmm. he meets at the Iron Age fort. Is that, is that right? They meet That's there right, yes. and they have a conversation. It's really quite revealing about the landscape and their people's attitude to it. There seems to be a link, to my mind, that this, this question of... Um, being unable to break a cycle of human behaviour mm-hmm. is partly down to the, a link between the land and and power, in a sense, how how people survive and the myths they, that they recycle, they use, mm-hmm. um, to get their ideas across to another, to persuade one another, to say they're not on our side. They need, they need the Mad Muller moment that you, mm-hmm. you mentioned. And that recurs in all, all three Yes, I mean, I want sections, absolutely. It? And I suppose, again, it sounds a little bit grandiose and certainly it's generalised, but to some degree in this country, we are all, many of us at least, no, all of us, because we've all culturally inherited the, where, where we are, but we're all, you know, the the, the descendants of, of, um, of dispossession. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's, uh, you know, certainly you see it much more, it's much more live, much more live issue in somewhere like Scotland. I know the island of Ulva for the moment is trying to do a community buyout. There were about eight hundred people living there before the clearances. Now yeah. there are six. Right. Okay. Uh, so there are many parts of Britain still, perhaps uh, you know, uh, further away from us in London, um, where this is still quite live. But I say actually, the idea that the land belong is, a, is is something that belongs to all of us is a commonwealth, and that it's been taken away from us it goes back to the the Normans, and it certainly goes back to to the to the to the um, to the Enclosures Act. And so there's an area of Heath which is in the book which exists in reality called mm-hmm. the Pause Allotment, which is basically 
an area of land uh, that is common. People traditionally would have gone to get their fuel there. And large areas of heath, as, as I am sure you know, you've read your John Clare and so on, large areas of our land were, were available to ordinary poor rural people to um, feed their pigs or to gather fuel. Uh, and gradually, Shakespeare himself, in the last years of his life, was making money this way. Um, the landed interests got the, rid of the people. We moved to cities, the sheep took over, or, you know, big agriculture generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when H sees this land, this is this, this area of heath and forest, this is where he used to ride his motorbikes. Um, and so when you've got a group of conservationists putting up stock fences and trying to preserve it, for him, this without him necessarily being conscious of the historical precedent, this triggers all kinds of anger mm-hmm. about the idea that he's being kept away from what's his birthright. And it's so bound up, as everything is bound up in this country, with, with class. Class and uh, property. And, you know. Class and property. Uh, and, you know, you see it all the time. I'm quite involved in conservation on an amateur personal level. And, you know, we're nearly all middle class, nice middle class people. Uh, and this doesn't this, this this sense of identification. I mean, nice. I mean, nice in inverted commas. There, <laughs> I'll take um, that kind of nice. Yes, I know what you mean. Um, and I, I, you know, I really, really wish that environmentalism uh, and conservation spoke much more to uh, urban working class uh, young people. But we know statistically that it doesn't, because there's a sense that's that's for the others. Mm-hmm. That's for people who you know sign up for the National Trust and eat cream teas and so on. So the tragedy is that for me, as someone very passionate about getting us to reconnect with the natural world, because we've got nothing else to live off. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's it. One of the many tragedies is that I think a lot of people are kind of closed off from uh, an engagement with with the natural world, which ought to be part of their birthright. Absolutely. But now seem not to be. Well, there seems to be a question of almost you know, um, needing to wake people up to this to head for a terrible now hackneyed phrase about being woke in other contexts <laughs> hackneyed that is but environmentally it seems like it's an ongoing terribly drawn out struggle against the, you know like as you said the forces of people being nice or, or being complacent even not necessarily even being dead set against um wanting to to help in this sense i mean i yes i mean i've been trying for years and years to work out how to bring together my concerns as a citizen about the environment with my concerns as a writer and one of the fundamental problems about writing uh, about any political or social issue is 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 that it becomes polemical mm-hmm. and unless you're an extremely good polemicist it's going to be bad literature it's hard to pull off isn't it even if your aim is simply to try and persuade people fold their arms and settle in and they don't want to yeah. hear an argument i mean I, 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 I there's a very short story of yours i really like um called visitor's book in which you again it's set in what it's not the tone isn't very much like Devil's Highway, I think, but it's said in one place, isn't it? And mm. it's it's really a story told from the outside. It's people coming to this place, uh, talking about one particular guide who you sense cares passionately about it, but for some of these visitors cares slightly too much. They're the people who don't want to get the message. Mm. I mean, it's interesting that with, with, um, with this book, with Devil's Highway, you found another way to to maybe combine these concerns with your work as a, you know, as a writer of stories, you know, make a storyteller. Did the voices, the three, you know, these are three sections or three stories in parallel that have completely different sort of tones. I mean, did that spring fully formed into being? Did you did you work to, towards that? I mean, I think you're a very good natural ventriloquist. Did you just know how it's going to be? I, I mean, I think this is true for a lot of voice-driven writers. The, the, the voice does come quite early. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, and so I, I mean I, I knew the other major influence on this book other than Alan Garner is uh, Russell Hoban right, Ridley sure. Walker and yeah. I know that you know writers far better known than me like Will Self and David Mitchell have also worked through this right the book of Dave, Dave and all this com- yeah, yeah, exactly sure. the, yeah. uh, the book of Dave and also I think Slusha's Crossing that section mm-hmm. of uh, Cloud Atlas mm-hmm. but uh, I knew that I wanted to write a story that initially seemed to be a third person perspective but gradually you realise it's actually being told from the point of view of one of the girls in this group of feral lost kids but because they are lost they're orphans they only have a sense of the collective mm-hmm. so initially they they think in kind of in terms of the we rather than the i and i knew that i wanted them to speak in a kind of degraded english because as russell hoban models so compellingly in ridley walker um if the reader is is willing and able and encouraged by the writer to go on this journey of discovery, to learn how to read this section, then we have to go through a little bit of a reconditioning of our own minds, mm-hmm. which is some kind of superficial correlative of the breakdown that the language represents. Right, we are having to go through that ourselves just at the level of basic comprehension of what's going on on the page. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's true that, of, of course, of all books, and particularly of all fiction, that each 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 fiction requires the reader to understand what the rules are. And the writer's job is to try and meet the reader at least halfway, rather than mm-hmm. just expecting them to come up to them and follow this difficult obscurity. So it's not it's not it's not about uh, trying to obfuscate or, or trying deliberately to make something ugly, but it is about trying to do what I suppose stylists are always trying to do, which is to find absolutely the right voice, the right idiolect for the content mm-hmm. and for the themes of the book. So yes, that section was the hardest to write by a long, long way. Right. Simply because, I, although I'm not a linguist, so I'm sure linguists would say there are all kinds of things I've done wrong about in my vague assumptions about how language might evolve in a climactic and social and economic breakdown. But I still needed to be quite consistent, so I had to write, work out a glossary. And then also I wanted to work out what the fauna and the flora would be mm-hmm. uh, a thousand years from now. So I you know, did quite a lot of research into ornithology and oh, I'm right. quite interested in birding anyway. But sure. you know, I, I brought lots of the, the birds that you'd encounter in southern Europe. I brought them to, to, to Surrey. Uh, so you know, I had to do a lot of background work for this. It's always mm. a challenge. What looks like it's, it's speculative f- fiction, or looks like fantasy, in many ways, is even harder work than writing naturalistic fiction or fiction based now, because you have to basically establish all the rules for yourself, uh, and you have to go somewhere to do it. So there's a kind of hard science fiction element almost there. You know, having to construct and extrapolate something from present day conditions, make it sound this is this is plausible. If, you know, yeah. people are happy with this. So yeah, absolutely. So need, it needs to be plausible. I think. Yeah, I mean, we've just lost uh, as as we're recording this. I think we're about 24 hours after the death of Ursula K. Le Guin was yeah. announced, mm. uh, a very very great writer and one of the great prophets, I think, mm-hmm. of our time. But, you know, she would always uh, argue that, you know, fantasy is not an escape from reality. It's not just sucking it out of your thumb. She wouldn't use that terminology. But right, you know what I mean? Right. You, you actually need to make sure that it's deeply grounded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you're writing something speculatively hundreds of years in the future, particularly because it's such it's such well-worn territory, you're in danger of stumbling onto Cormac McCarthy's The Road with... Oh, sure, that's nearby. Yeah. You're, that's somewhere yeah. off your road. You take a wrong turning, <laughs> suddenly you're, uh, you are in the States. A great, great book. But, sure, but yeah. even so, you know, uh, I wanted to make sure that... You know, I don't think the world of the future is going to be about total collapse. 
Right. Even if things go as badly as badly as they might, it's going to be about constant, unpleasant, difficult presence of the sorts that people are experiencing right now. So I thought, well, I need to go to, not literally, because that would involve far too much work and I'd have got far too much, but going to places like Darfur, at least in my research, because yeah. I wanted to, to imagine a world where pastoralists and nomads are pitched against each other. There's another episode, one of the characters has suffered, who's, 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 an, who's an immigrant, um, ref, refugees and migrants. So I started writing this. This wasn't as live as it is now. And we know that right. one of the reasons we're having these, this massive flow of wretched, unhappy migrants from uh, the Middle East and Africa is largely bound up with climactic conditions where they where they live. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this character finds himself on this island in the middle of the massively expanded Thames estuary. And he goes through an experience which is absolutely hellish. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I won't go into, no, but sure. that's based entirely on my reading of one little episode in the sorry story of Stalin's gulags. So again, right. I wanted to make sure I had a really cheerful research for this it book. Sounds, yeah, it sounds like it was I also want the book to be time. to be celebratory of this of this Heath, and and ultimately, and perhaps this sounds in this context rather pat. I I do want to to, to suggest that the late Leonard Cohen's idea that love is the only engine of survival is is the only answer we can come up with it sounds glib when you put it like that but we all know that's partly where the book is going we all know from our own lives that's that's the only thing that where what motivates us isn't power sure yes life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And that seems to be something. I mean, I'm very struck by the section. I mean, you, I think you you said something actually that echoes something somebody says in the, in the sort of future sections um, of the book. A character they meet who's a kind of um, he's he's big and strong, but he's not actually violent. Unlike half the people they meet, and he starts giving them lots of advice about how to live on the heath, how to survive. Lots of things they don't know about what certain. Mm birds and beasts do how to how to camp all the rest of it um he says uh one place is lots of places if you wait long enough ain't no good place nor bad place we just flies on them 
But on the other hand, when you decide that trees and animals are only things for your convenience, you're on the road to destruction. That phrase you use about um, things for your convenience, that's the power element, isn't it? They're not just things you, you love for their own sake or you respect. Mm. They are things, whether they are human or non-human, that you're just going to put to use in some way or destroy. Yeah, and and that's absolutely the culture that we've inherited. We've in, in, inherited, mm-hmm. you know. With the, uh, you know, we may not most of us be in the theological sense dominionists, but we've <laughs> all been deeply conditioned by this this sense that that the earth is ours to do with as we please. Now we can do with as we please technologically and in terms of our numbers. That's what we're already doing. But ultimately, we're going to pay a price that's not just physical but also a spiritual one. Mm-hmm. At which point it all sounds sounds a bit icky and lots of people would kind of sort of mentally switch off. But but I, I I do feel that that's that I I don't know how well I do it, but I do feel that literature needs to start to engage with this this big stuff because it's so vast and perplexing and all enclosing that I think the longer we we look away from it, the more we're gonna to struggle to find a language to describe the dismay that we're going to mm-hmm. feel as as, you know, you know, the statistics, not just about climate, but about the collapse of the biosphere, you know, absolutely terrifying. And yet somehow we seem unable to compute them and because we can't compute them. Mm. We don't seem to have maybe the literary forms to deal with this in any way adequately. I mean, adequately is a terrible word for this. But I mean, do, do, but do you see it starting to happen around us that people are, are starting to um, write and grapple with this in anything like an adequate way? <sighs> But it depends what we mean by, by adequate. Very early, earlier, uh, Michael, you were talking about, uh, you know, how difficult it is to to try and proselytize about the environment, and um, a huge part of this is that it's, it's bound up with our sense of identity. Um, mm-hmm. And if no matter how perhaps toxic to us the things that give us a sense of identity are, we'll still fight for them tooth and nail because identity is this fundamental thing we need to maintain. Mm-hmm. So as long as our whole society thinks of itself. Gets its derives its meaning from ultimately destructive and self-destructive behaviour, then I think it's going to be very, very difficult for us to really turn a corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, then when, of course, you have lots and lots of writers, we had, yeah, I suppose someone coined the term cli-fi, which makes me shudder. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, that's pretty horrific. You know, there's, there's, I can think of a lot of fiction which has been written with the intention to, to wake us up, and mm-hmm. it's nearly always bad, because because ultimately the... the your loyalty as a storyteller is to the characters and the truths of their of their lives, you know, uh, which is why I think very often, at least, I mean, this is a bit of a cliche, lots of novelists perhaps come across better in their novels than they do in their own lives. We're often shocked when X or Y in their letters turns out to be rather bigoted or likes to shock the bien-pensant. Um, but this shouldn't surprise us because if you, if if you're doing your job properly as a writer, your job is to serve the truth of your characters, as I say, and and so you, it'd be very it'd be very difficult to know. I mean, you, you know, you'd have to write a book from the point of view of someone who's basically you could only write novels from the point of view of fictionalized versions of Aldo Leopold. Mm-hmm. Um, and while that might be a very interesting challenge, I don't know that it would necessarily make for good narrative. The other problem, of course, there is that if you wanted to try in fiction, the old cliche, Blake that Milton was of the devil's party without knowing it. Mm-hmm. And then other cliches that dystopias are much easier to write than utopias because we can imagine things yeah. turning to shit, but we can't imagine what a positive thing would look like because mm-hmm. ultimately we live in, to use a Christian terminology, a fallen world, and so mm-hmm. it's impossible to imagine an unfallen one. So if you're trying to write fiction that 
uh, is uh, sort of futurologically engaging and positive thinking for the future, which is often I hear from environmentalists. Why can't you write a novel about how things could be wonderful if we can do all this? You stuff? really ask that question. Oh yeah, I've been asked this question many times, and I, and I you know, and I've I've tried, mm-hmm. but the fundamentally the point is you need conflict. You need uh, sure. Uh, you need things to be problematic. I mean, any attempts I can think of to write um, ecological utopias. One would be a book called, a book called Ecotopia by a guy called Ernst Kallenbach, who was writing in the 70s. I don't know if you know it. No. Um, uh, and it's it's not a very good novel. But what's interesting about that, and, and I mentioned Alistair Gray earlier, Alistair Gray also wrote a book called The History Maker, which is a very minor book of his, but uh, and not very well reviewed, but I rather like it. Mm-hmm. And that's set in the Scottish borders. And imagine a situation where science, technology has basically sold all our all our needs to feed ourselves. Right. Uh, so he's imagine a utopian scenario where we don't have to exploit the environment anymore because we've got these incredible machines that just generate all our food artificially. But he imagines that these tribes get together and they have violent war games. Right. And Ernst Kallenbach <laughs> has a very similar idea mm-hmm. that although this is eventually you know, his world is basically that the uh, coastal California and Cascadia, you know, Oregon and Washington yeah. break off and the rest of America and form an ecologically sustainable society. But they too have violent war games. And what's interesting right. about both those things is that they would be utopias that recognize that we have destruction in us. We have mm-hmm. violence in us. And one of the problems of utopias is it always imagines that we can do without that stuff. And of course, if we try and suppress it, it'll come out anyway. Well, that's very far from the devil's highway, isn't it, the in the world highway. in which well, I don't mean in a bad way, I mean in the sense that you, this is some. This is a place in which war games in that sense are completely unnecessary and um, at all times we've been grappling, shall we say, with a world that is, that is distinctly fallen, shall we hmm. say. Um, well, look, here's hoping that Devil's Highway proves to be immensely popular and gets across its formidable message to as many readers as possible uh in this week's tls there is of course a thumbs up review from jay griffiths who thinks it's terrific and calls it psychologically pitch perfect but also a book that runs at a cracking pace which sounds like a pretty good um combination uh gregory normanton thank you very much for coming into the studio and joining us thank you very much for having me Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.